You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another week of The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week we have my favourite town planner, the town planner I have the most respect for in WA. He works for Strategic Surveying. It's Dave Gilbert. Dave, thank you very much for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me in again. Mate, what are we talking about today? Looking at the medium density changes that are going to be coming up towards the end of this year and into next year. So clarifying on that, on the 27th of November last year, we had the draft median density code come through online from the Department of Planning, Land and Heritage. That's essentially out there in the public for comment all the way through until the 16th of April. That's correct. This year. So there's been a few workshops, obviously, with the public, also with professionals like yourself to discuss with the guys in-house at the Department of Planning, the practical effects of what this is going to mean, because it will have some impact on the way that normal mum and dad investors, developers go about turning one house into two or three or four or five or 10, right? That's correct. And just before we get stuck into the nitty gritty of it, just want to congratulate the team behind that from WPC in terms of they've been very receptive of the feedback that we've been given at the workshops. So it's good to actually see we're not just butting heads, they're actually taking feedback from the community. So I'm going to look forward to seeing what these final draft is actually going to look like. Well, this came out on the 27th of November last year, but it's been in the works for a good year and a half, hasn't it? Dating back to 2019 is when they first started on it. Why do you think it's taken this long? There's been a lot of research go into this. They were looking at the issues that they were seeing coming up was a lot of uniformity within housing blocks. So pretty much that cookie-cutter designs where if, if you're in a certain area, if you do a design on one lot, that's the same design that's going to go on to the next one. And that's a problem? It's a problem because it's just creating this monoculture within the same block. And ideally, we would want diversity in housing types so all different people can live in different areas. That's exactly right. The diversity of housing type allows for a diversity of socioeconomics, but also socio-demographics, which means culture. And that makes better places to live. And one of the best examples of really poor planning with, with regards to that monoculture is maybe a suburb like Balgar or Westminster, where uh, 10, 15 years ago, they rezoned, they allowed for triplexes across the board at R40 on blocks that were all pretty much 700 and something square meters, and they all look the same, they all provide the same, they're all the same spec, and obviously very similar price point. Yeah, it's, it's like those greenfield subdivisions where you see the home and land packages. Yeah, they're all the same. They're all the same. Okay, so let's talk about the practical effects that are going to come in. And we can put them into a few different buckets. Most important to and most pertinent to most investors, most developers, has to be any implications that will reduce the development potential of a block or make you fundamentally change what you would normally do. And the first thing that I've seen, which you can expand on, Dave, is the requirement for tree growth zones, which especially on a 728 square meter block where you might be able to fit a small triplex in, that nearly changes the developability of that block, doesn't it? It does, and that really depends on the lot shape as well. Um, a lot of these guidelines, you're already having to provide an outdoor open space for 45% on most of these lots. The difference is that because they're trying to encourage a lot more landscaping and usable landscaping, so not just the tiny vegetation strips down a driveway, but actually you know, a small little garden in the backyard. So they're asking for uh, soil areas, tree root zones, but in a more uniform approach. So they're actually amalgamating those areas together 
and combining them together, which is fine on a square block because it's easy to design around that. But when you have a triangle shape or a cone shape lot, that's where you're going to start seeing these issues come up and be able to actually provide the minimum dimension that they actually want for the lots. Let's talk about an R40 development. With that, you would need an outdoor living area of 20 square meters generally, right? With a minimum dimension of four meters. If you have to then add on a tree growth zone to that, that means your effective outdoor area needs to be, what, 36 square meters, something like that at least. Uh, it really starts to cut into what you can actually build on these blocks. Does that mean we're going to be forced to go two-story townhouses, especially in areas that the fundamentals economically don't support it? With the the size of the trees that get installed, so currently we've got a lot of councils that have their own tree policies where they're enforcing trees to be installed during the development. Uh, what the actual this new medium density code is trying to do is actually make it a bit more easier for us developers in only requiring a smaller tree. So rather than having a three by three metre root zone, the actual minimum requirement under the medium density is going to be a one and a half by one and a half. So it's a lot smaller, but yes, it does add to that overall scheme of having to have not just the outdoor living area, but now a tree root zone. And you're also going to have to have a deep soil area of 40 square meters. That deep soil area could be the driveway? It depends on what sort of development that you're doing. So whether you're doing it as a strata, survey strata, or green title. So that's going to affect how these are actually going to be calculated. I guess that means that if you're having to at least have a one, one and a half meter zone coming off the alfresco area, again, that would cut into the house space. If you've got a 190 square meter middle block on a triplex, you're probably not fitting a three by two on there on a single story anymore, right? Not if you're trying to do it as deemed to comply, which is meeting those regulations where they have set these dimensions. We're probably going to find in the future that a lot more of these are going to be more in-depth review and justification in order to just fit a house design onto these lots. And you would have thought after these new density codes come in, the planning officers at each council will probably be sticking to them quite strictly, wouldn't they? Yeah, so the idea of removing red tape, well, we've just added another layer to it. For me, it looks like risk and it looks like a, a conversation which we had with Rita Safiotti a couple of months ago around the fact that we're going to be forced to go up and move into townhouses even if financially it doesn't make sense for the developer because the market isn't supporting it. In the workshop that we went to, we went through these different opportunities as they like to frame it as, they did acknowledge that increasing these outdoor living areas and these landscaping is going to force you to go to two-storey. They did compare it to the cost savings from the community of not having all these heat sink zones and having more trees is more value in that. But when you ignore all that sort of stuff, what they're saying is that, yes, it's going to cost more to build. You're going to have to go two-storey. We know that. It is what it It is. It is what it is. For the greater good of a green canopy in Perth. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And I guess we all recognize that ideologically we agree with it, but there's going to be some pain, I think, along the way where we are forced to go two-storey on a normal single-storey triplex site and the market hasn't caught up and the market may not want townhouses. You might have a big downsizer market where most of them don't want two storeys and stairs. But the only way we're going to be able to do a triplex is by doing townhouse. It's either going to force developers to zone down to a duplex, which is not the purpose of the zoning in the first place, or wait until the market comes along with them and the sales prices of those townhouses that they build catch up in line with the extra cost they're going to have of building them. Because you're still getting, for example, a three by two out of a townhouse. It's just obviously costing you an extra 80 to 100 grand more to do it per townhouse. What else have we got there? Solar orientation, 
Is that coming into the, the mix or being clarified? Yeah, so a lot more deemed to comply conditions. So this is where you actually, you know, if you want to tick box development, you have to orientate your outdoor living spaces, your garden areas towards the north. We did speak about this in the workshops. They acknowledged that not every site is going to be able to actually accomplish this. Well, probably half of the sites won't be able to because half of them are on one side of the road and half on the other. Exactly. Uh, and they couldn't provide a black and white decision of, of what they're going to do about it yet. So some, some more thought that needs to go into that. Well, what it means for me is that a lot of the more compromised sites that are south of a road, south of a street, they're going to be forced, especially for the front house, to have the alfresco at the front, which does two things. One, less privacy for your outdoor living and also with noise. But two, you're going to have to spend an extra 15, 20 grand on that semi-permeable infill wall uh, at the front that you may not have had to by having the backyard or the outdoor living area at the back. So it makes your development more expensive. It probably makes your alfresco living less desirable, but it gives you better uh, lighting, better aspects for that northern light. So trade-off again, probably in ways where people would have liked to have had the autonomy before and now they don't. And this is where we're going to see that big difference between good designs and bad designs. Because if you can involve the outdoor living area into the house, so it's a bit of a mix, then it's a great idea. But as we know, there's not a lot of that product actually coming to market at the moment. Anything else that they seem to be taking away from us or forcing us to do before we move into some of the more positive sides? I see what they're trying to do with these designs. I think they've they've done a very good job of, of doing so. I think that... As these regulations get locked down and we actually have some designers spend some decent time working on their designs, we're going to find that they're not as bad as we probably think they are. But like you did mention before, there is going to be that transition period where people feel like they missed out on the XXX development and you'd have to wait for the market to catch up. I think that's going to slow down urban infill again because there will be a gap there where people have got urban infill sites, but the market doesn't support going to two-storey or spending the extra money on the extra outdoor living area. There's going to be some some side effects here that I think are going to slow down the supply of urban infill. The next point, parking. We haven't really talked about that. It's a little bit interesting the way that they've pushed this here because not only have they provided a minimum, which is quite interesting being zero, but they've also provided a maximum. What's, what's going on here? So if you can run us quickly through a studio and one bedroom dwelling, a two bedroom dwelling and a three or more bedroom dwelling, what are the minimums and maximums? Yeah, so with the parking, they're separated into two different locations. There's a location A, which is near high frequency transport. It's also near activity centers as well. So that's with the areas where the idea is that someone should be able to walk down the street and get the groceries, get all the immediate goods that they need to. Live the in, Cosmo lifestyle. Exactly. In those areas, uh, for example, a studio or a one-bedroom uh, place would have a minimum requirement of zero. So you wouldn't even have to provide You, you don't parking. have to provide one. Yep. But the interesting part of that is that there's a maximum of one. Yep. So Which you, is normal for a one-bedder. Yep. But the maximum has been, been set there. So you yep. can't provide two car bays or two garage spots. Uh, for a two-bedroom, the maximum for that one is one. I find that interesting. There's a lot of people out there who would buy or pay a premium to buy a two by one or a two by two with two car base because it's a couple with two cars. We're a very uh, vehicle orientated uh, city being in Perth. So it's going to be, I think this is one of those requirements where we're forcing a culture change. I think it's contentious. I think we've been moving towards better apartments with two car bays rather than away from that recently. And you might find that there's going to be a negative that's created by this because we're only talking about garage spots, not yeah. 
car bays that are open. So you might find that you end up having all these car bays surrounded in these developments where they've got the extra car. Yeah, more visitor bays. Yeah, and then if we move on to three-bedroom units, two-garage two maximum for that one. Okay, and what about if we get away from the location A, so just off of the main strips, and we go to location B, surely we get a few more car bays. You only get more for those two-bedroom dwellings. So, so that goes to a that two. That goes from a one to a two. Yep. The three bedrooms, they stay f- with two. Yeah, the, the studio and the single bedrooms, they stay with having a maximum of one. Again, I find that quite contentious that uh, we're trying to get people close to activity centers, two-bedroom villas, good in-the-middle option there, but then meaning essentially those people who live in two-bedroom villas either need to have one car or be a single person. Yeah, and I can see these situations where the garages are going to be pushed further back into the lot so there's enough space for a car bay in front of it Mm. so once again you're creating this disconnect between the dwelling itself and the streetscape everything that they're trying to avoid now how about their incentives it seems like the incentives they've got with regards to amalgamations are looking to try and get us to develop different types of urban infill something in between a class two apartment building and a triple x so there's a flip side of the coin of them you know bringing in these wider areas that you need to include into your development. So now your single lot by itself makes the triplex probably not as viable. But what they did do is change these categories. So there's three categories now. Category one, pretty much the CR codes and lot sizes as they currently were. And then category two, that's if you have two-sided access, so it'd be a laneway or a road, you actually get a high yield potential and also minimum Lot sizes also change slightly as well. So, so a corner lot or a lot with a laneway that is gazetted behind it. A lot that has two points of access. Yep. So then the idea of what they're trying to do is actually have a bit more of functional developments. So if you're in these better sites where there are more opportunities for access, well, then you can have smaller houses, which means that you can actually have more landscaping. Is that reflecting the design control policy 2.2 we saw come in a couple of years ago? Is that really just what we know now for corner lot bonuses? The changes to it is that the actual minimum lot size changes. So there's a 20 square meter drop from that minimum lot size. If you're in an R40 site, if you're less than R40, it's 40 square meters. Yeah. So it does mean that on a site that might have been a triplex yield, you might actually get four out of it now. Can you give us an example quickly off the top of your head? One that would see to change would be, you know, there's a lot of lots in Scarborough, WV area, would have the rear laneway. A lot of those sites are duplex sites. You can't get anything more out of it. With those sites having the two access, you'd be able to drop those by 20 square meters per lot and then be able to fit three on it. Okay. So those R30 lots is where it really starts to kick in. For the lots that are R40 at the moment, that's where we see that benefit. And that's the ones that are going to be affected the most by these changes in terms of the landscaping, the deep soil areas, the triplex sites, which are majority R40. That's category two. Category three is looking at the big development side of things so it's amalgamating lots that are going to be i think it's higher than 1500 square meters they have multiple points of access and then in order to actually develop those you have to put a local development plan in place Uh, a local development plan just tells you how the lot sizes are meant to be the intended types of dwellings that are going to be built in that area so it's like a mini greenfield subdivision with a bit more of a higher planning perspective applied to it so it's not specifically an amalgamation per se that needs to happen. It's more that really something that's got about 1,500 square meters, which would generally be a couple of blocks put together. If you have a site that big, 
then there can be some planning bonuses coming along. And you'll find that those are in the yield, so the minimum lot areas and the average lot areas will actually decrease. They dropped quite a bit. They dropped quite a bit. So if you had an apartment block that was providing a yield of about 14 units, you actually find that that might bump up to somewhere around 18, 24, depending on the lot size. And is that for properties that have, again, multiple points of access or would that also include properties in Queens Park and East Cannington that are 20 metres wide and 100 metres long? If it's 100 metres long, uh, you probably wouldn't want to develop it because no. you're going to lose so much. But I see what the point you're getting at. That would only be a Category 2. Why is that? The points of access are still going to be a single point of access. So okay. you're going to have all this traffic coming off this tiny little development that is going to be providing a negative impact on the community. The idea of that category three is those prime sites, the ones that are at the end of the blocks, amalgamating those lots together, and they're the ones that have the, the most access points, giving the highest yield to those. And then the secondary one is looking at the smaller blocks, the ones that are, might be on the end of a small block or could be halfway down the block, but has two points of access, providing those with a bit more of a benefit. And then you have go back to the single lot by itself, which just stays as it currently is. Finally, on that category three, that's also got a proximity requirement to local activity centres, right? It can't just be anywhere in the back of Maddington, for example. So should we go back to the corner lot example? We said R20 and just say that that will stay the same because it's R20. Okay, so we've heard about the bad news, in my opinion, but there, there are some giveaways. There's some incentives for us to develop differently, to develop more communally, uh, and really just to develop in a way that is less fragmented, right? They've provided us with yield up lists for certain category lots. The idea being is that rather than just having that uniform approach across a whole block, you're going to have certain lots within that block. They're going to have the opportunity to develop at a higher standard or a lower minimum lot size or averages, meaning that there's going to be, ultimately the idea is a variation in those lots that are going to be created. So you've got a category one lot, which is your standard lot, how things currently are in the middle by itself. Uh, you have category two, this gets a slight yield uplift. It varies from 20 square meters to 40 square meters, uh, reduction in lot sizes. Those lots require points of dual access, or they could be lots that have been amalgamated together in order to give a overall lot size of more than 1200 square meters. So the idea being is that we've got these lots that have good points of access, or we have these lots that we're combining together in order to do a bit more of a bigger development so it has a nicer outcome for the community. And then the upper end of that is actually a category three. So that's where we have corner lots that are over 1,500 square metres. So they could be amalgamated together to have corner lots that have all been combined together to be greater than 1,500. In those particular spots, the idea is that if you want to develop those, well, then we have to get a local development plan in place that local development plan is what tells future people that buy those lots, this is how you're going to develop or the idea or the intent of this development. And they also need to be two-storey builds, right? So they're trying to create, I guess, maybe some terrace housing on the corners, bring that back from you know, 80 years ago. Well, there'll be a, a variety of, of different options that they, they put through there in order to try and increase that density or that, and also that diversity, sorry. This really only is applicable to development sites that are R30 down to R50, that is the definition of median density zoning, really. Anything from R30 to R50, it's not just your single house or your side-by-side side or your house behind a house, but it's also not apartments. It's, it's definitely relevant to our triplexes, our quads, and those villa developments, right? That's the majority of the infill that is being pushed at the moment. Okay, so let's get an example here. We've got an R40 site, currently in R40, with a, the Category 1 site, you'd have an average of 
220 yep. and a minimum of 180, right? Mm-hmm. Which would allow for you to, on a 700 and something square meter block, put a triplex on there. If you were to go category two, which would be either being on a corner or amalgamating two houses together, as you said, or having a real laneway, laneway. Yep. Yep. the average now becomes the minimum, which is 180. So now we're in a situation where we have a corner block on 728 square meters that can now be a quad site. That's correct. Yep. Up until now, we've been talking about corner block bonuses. That didn't ever apply to R40. No, that's this, right. Now it's going to. Yeah, so you, originally that you know, the DC put Development Control Policy 2.2 only went up to R30 sites. I think that's a real benefit and that's something that we can be looking at in terms of our acquisition plan is corner lots that are over 700 square metres that are R40. They actually see an uplift there from being a triple X site to a quad site by the end of the year. And it'd be good to look at the designs where we actually amalgamate two lots together and actually see what that yield potential is because it's going to come down to design. What this is also doing in comparison to what we know about corner lot bonuses is it's giving us a new minimum. Before, or currently with our DCP 2.2 bonus, the average became the minimum, but there was no minimum underneath that, right? So if you had a R30 site that was on a corner, the minimums would be the average being 260 square meters each, right? With this new category, it's allowing for that average to be 260, but the minimum to be 220. Why would that be if you've got a corner? Just to give you a bit of flexibility as to what you could do? Well, if you have a corner lot and currently where you still have to meet the same minimums as every other block in that street, it means that you're building a house of a similar size and shape to the rest of the street. There's no change. There's no diversity. So the idea being is by reducing the minimum lot sizes as well for these better placed lots is that they're going to add some diversity to that street block. I think that's a really good outcome just to give developers choice to provide different product. Finally, let's give an example on the Category 3 sites. We'll stick to an R40. So this is, again, a corner lot that has got 1,500 square meters now, not just 1,200, but 1,500 square meters. That gives an even bigger bonus where now the average is only 150, which is less than what the average for R60, which is equal to the average of a R60 Category 1 site. So you could be doing an R60 development essentially on a, on a corner lot that is zoned R40. The interesting part's going to be when we have the new title schemes come through, where we have the variety in, in community schemes and uh, which have the different tiered developments as well. Because I think that's going to be the big opportunity is having these Category 3 lots that are quite large, have these small minimum lot sizes, where you can have a variety of apartments, townhouses, terrace designs, all on the same lot. You said we need a local development plan though for these category three opportunities. That's a scary thing to think about. Is this a process that takes 18 months for people? Is it an expensive thing that you need to get planning officers involved in that costs thousands of dollars? You can pr- certainly go for the private sector to get a local development plan done. Most of them are gonna be a single page sheet, usually an A3 sheet that shows the location and some ver- variations to the, the R codes. Why would you need a local de- development plan if, if it could be that simple then? The reason for it is that we just don't want to be producing lots on that nice corner lot site, exactly the same builds. Because then all we got is this another uni- tiny little uniformed monocultural area at the end of a block. That makes a lot of sense. So we've been discussing this in regards to a development, right? What about a subdivision if someone was just to subdivide land? Could they just be going ahead and carving blocks up into six meter wide, 120 square meter blocks that are you know on an R40 corner. Is that something that investors are going to be able to do? Or do these development plans and requirements mean you have to go and build before you can get approval? So the local development plan is actually 
been put in place just in case that person that does the subdivision sells the land. So whoever buys that land lot, they'll then have to meet the requirements of the local development plan. So it means that you know, even if a developer comes along, makes all these tiny lots, there's still going to be some sort of variety in that development in the end when the people have bought them and done their own builds. Variety, but also uniformity in the positive way, right? That it's, it's not just hickety-pickety from six different buyers of six different pieces of land. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. There is a plan. This is how it needs to be built. If you'd like to buy this block, the house on the top of it needs to be built this way. When we're saying it has to be built this way, it's, it's not like you're limited in the designs you do. It's just that that lot that you picked might have to be two-story or three-story. That's going to have to be the garage in a certain position. But you know, ultimately, the paint color could be your own. There could be different variations in terms of the build material that's been used as well. It just comes down to how much detail gets placed into those local development plans. Comments here in terms of how long we've got until these come into effect? Ultimately, they're looking to have this approved regulations prepared by the end of the year. Then there'll be a transition period running into early next year where people will be able to see, all right, these are the, the, the clauses that are going to be in lockdown. And this is what we're going to be dealing with so that any applications you make during that time period are still going to be assessed on the ones that you thought they were going to be. A little bit of leeway there for people who are caught in the middle. Yeah, it's going to be a transition period. So it won't be a stop-start point. We know this is going to be coming up. We know what we're going to be dealing with before we start purchasing blocks or looking at future potential. Mate, it's been a great chat. Pretty detailed, a bit nerdy today, but I think it's worth having on the public forum in perpetuity um, to be able to explain this especially to our most loyal listeners who are developers themselves and probably give them a little bit of heads up that things will be changing in the next 12 months and those normal triple X's we've been doing, they're going to have to change. That's correct, yeah. Mate, <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> for your time and I'm sure we'll have you in again soon. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!